Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This show is an encore presentation of the Faith Middleton Fuchmoos. Hope you enjoy this second helping. Off of my city, off of my home. We're flying up, no ceiling when we in our zone. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studios at the Big G Gateway Community College in New Haven, five professional kitchens where they teach students how to enter the food world, and we have use of them all, plus a television studio. My treasured food buddies are here. Senior contributor Chris Prosperi, Alex Province at our sister station, KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, and Netta Hadari, the ice cream man. You're going to hear about that in just a little while. Hey, everybody. Hey, Fed. Robin Doyen Aiken is our senior producer. All right, we're going to start with, we've got the ice cream tasting coming up. It's some of the most delicious ice cream I have ever had in my life. So you're going to want to hear about this. We have Mark Bittman joining us. He has a new book called How to Grill Everything. Alex has been cooking up a storm. Chris has made something from the cookbook. And we're going to start with this. Chris, let me pass one to you. This is a small, it's very wet. Um, It's in a little ice bucket, a small pink can. It's called Alex Bolincini. It is a sparkling rosé from ah, there you go from oh, Italy. There you go. And this is meant yeah, good Chris. This mm. is meant to go on a picnic. We're going to give it a taste right here on the show. Mm. Mm. Oh, you're killing me. Ah. Mm. Sparkling you know wine in a can. <laughs> this is the perfect. It's, it's pink. It's just beautiful, charming. It's dry. It's light. I really like this. Chris, like what do you... Like a Prosecco? It is a Prosecco. And well, it, it's a sparkling cuvee, they say. And it comes in a 187 milliliter can. And there's a rosé, which is in this awesome pink can. But there's also a Brut, right, that comes in a blue can. So you can have blue and pink uh-huh. cans in your cooler. I'm suspecting you're not going to taste, Alex, that much difference between the rosé and the brute because the rosé is not very floral. It's very dry, and it's lovely. You know, it's just refreshing. I would adore taking these on a picnic. Netta and Robin, wouldn't you like this on a picnic? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay, here we go. Chris, it's how about much a, is it? It's about $11 for a four-pack. So that's basically a bottle of wine. And it comes each can, in a little four-pack. Yeah, it comes in a little cardboard four-pack, and each can is a quarter bottle. So it really is a, the equivalent of $11 a bottle. So Bollicini, 
B-O-L-L-I-C-I-N-I, Bollicini, Italian sparkling wine, in other words, vino frizzante. And you just serve it really cold. Yeah, put it right in the ice cooler, right? Yeah, that's what we did. Buried in ice. Um, if you go to the website, we tell you everything you need to know, who the distributor is, how much it is, and you just show it at the wine store yeah. if you don't want to say words or you want to make sure they have it for when you come in. So <laughs> it is at foodschmooze.org. Another package that you can bring to places where you can't bring glass, like on a boat yeah. or camping. Or, yeah. Never even yeah. thought of that. Totally mm-hmm. recyclable. Fourth of July is right around the corner. Yeah. yeah. A few weeks ago, we did on a rosé in a box, and now we've got a rosé in a can. Yeah. <laughs> Think what's coming. What's next? <laughs> Okay. Alex Province, I know you're in Phoenix right now at KJZZ, our sister station. Say hi to Brian, the engineer for us. I like to ask you what new thing you've cooked that's influenced by the sort of southwestern milieu that you're in. So what did you do this time? So you know that Spanish rice, you know when you get like a combination plate at a Mexican restaurant and it comes with mm-hmm. fried beans, refried beans and yeah. rice? yeah. You mostly dig into the enchiladas and you kind of save that to the end or bring it home with mm-hmm. you. Well, I actually, <laughs> I like that Spanish rice. I love it. You know, and I always start there. So Matt and I figured out a way to make Spanish rice at home that tastes exactly like it does in a typical middle-of-the-road Mexican restaurant, so and the, it couldn't be easier. The I mean, question everybody's asking is what's in that Spanish rice that either gives it that color or mm-hmm. that certain flavor. Zing. This is like having movie theater popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's not anything like you'd have in Spain, so it's more like Mexican rice. Mm-hmm. But it uh, resembles, I guess, maybe pie in the sense that you start off with sautéing some onions in olive oil or butter or if you have lard. But I used olive oil to be healthy. And then I did a few slivers of garlic. And then just like a paella, I dumped my long grain rice into this oil and onion mixture and I toss it until it becomes transparent. It's not toasting, but it just starts the cooking process. And then you add some chicken broth. I just want to make sure that the rice went in dry. The rice goes in dry right Mm -hmm. into the saute pan with the onions and olive oil and you coat it and you'll watch the grains of rice go from white to transparent. And at that point, you add your water, in this case, chicken broth. And then you add your secret ingredient, which is the cup of salsa, like the regular salsa that comes in your refrigerator yeah. in a jar. Wow. <laughs> regular That's salsa. Like Newman's it? Own's my favorite. I could you totally dump it. that right in there. Yeah, me too. So you Did dump... you make that up? No, we, we found it online and just kind of modified it. We added garlic and uh, – Like an aha moment though, isn't it? <laughs> so, and all of a sudden so – Yeah, some smoked truffle. And, <laughs> and so all of a sudden you add uh, you, the salsa to it, reduce the heat, and you cover it. And you come back 20 minutes later and it's red, right? And you take a bite of it and it tastes just like Mexican, you know, Spanish rice you get yeah. in a restaurant. It is so – It's great. Good. It's like the Mexican equivalent of macaroni and cheese. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm going to try that this weekend. So let me Too let easy. me let me switch us all over to the whole subject of ice cream because Alex, I can't wait to tell you this. You're in a different studio, so I have to tell you about the experience we just had. So 
I'm with Chris and Robin, and our guest, Netta Hadari, who lives in New Haven, comes wheeling up on his tricycle, which is which has a freezer attached to it, because he has decided to make pure ice cream. Now, if you listen to ice cream companies, they say they have to add all these chemicals and use these processes to bring the, like the product to market. And there are lots of words you can't pronounce on the label. Well, Netta decided to do something pure. So he sells this ice cream. It is as pure as driven snow. <laughs> and he will come to your to your party, you know, even your wedding, and he goes to festivals. This is where he's doing it now. It's called What is Real? And he wheeled this into our kitchen and into the building, and it was just the most fun, Ice and cream. we tasted every <laughs> flavor. Meta brought the party. I'm just blown away. Did the away bike fit through the this. door? Double oh, yeah. doors. Blown <laughs> away. Blown, blown away. If you see this guy, mm-hmm. this is the guy. Go straight to his thing. But The flavors. Netta, welcome to the Fuchmus officially. Thank you Welcome back, much. I should Thank say. Thank you so much. Sure. So, uh, philosophy. What made you say, was it a business venture? Did you say, I'm sick of this, There's, I can't find ice cream that's as pure as I want it to be? What? How did it happen? Well, uh, my wife was sick and tired of having our bank account go to the local ice cream shop. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Inspired seven, by the economy. Yeah, seven or eight years ago, she bought me one of those, the Cuisinart oh, ice cream sure. makers. Tabletop. We have one of those. Uh, yeah. yeah, which I actually still use for research and development. It's perfectly fine to make ice cream. And actually, if you go to my website, you can see how to make my vanilla ice cream. Very good. Uh, so you can make it at home, which I, I really love. And just started making ice cream. And one of my friends a few years ago just said, you know, you should sell this. It's really good. And it didn't really take it very seriously. Until a few years ago, I had a frustrating job search, as many people can have. And I was just looking for real connection. That's what I get with my music. There's a real connection with people. And I wanted to create that with with food. But I wanted to feel something that I wasn't getting anywhere else. Well, how does that relate to uh, the ice cream? So I like ice cream. I find that ice cream brings everybody together. You have a pint of ice cream. People are coming over to your place. <laughs> Each with their own pint. Each right? with their own pint. It's coming together. <laughs> I remember hosting ice cream parties back in grad school. And everybody would bring their own pints, and then I would have all the pints for the rest what of the, the a few weeks. Why did I never was think Was that beer, of though? <laughs> it wasn't beer. It was ice cream. <laughs> it could be ice cream. And uh, But I wanted to create something that wasn't going to contribute to any kind of obesity epidemic or anything that we have in this country. Because when I go to ice cream store, I just want a little bit. I want to taste. Mm -hmm. So when I'm out on the street, I also serve mini scoops. I call them the trifecta. So you can try have three mini scoops, which is three ounces of ice cream. Okay. And you get to taste. What what's in this? There isn't a single chemical, and you know one of those weird uh, names you can't pronounce. So what's in here? Yes. So basically, there's cream, there's whole milk, there are egg yolks, there's skim milk powder, which is just dehydrated milk. And vanilla. Or and vanilla. whatever. Or whatever what, what else it is. There's sugar. White sugar can be brown sugar. Some of my recipes have brown sugar in them. Uh-huh. And then if it's a fruit and recipe, there's fruit. So you do a vegan one. I also do also. a vegan ice cream. And I, that was not my intention to make vegan ice cream. But I, 
What's vegan this, ice cream? So I've been doing this for a year, and people kept asking me, do you have non-lactose ice cream? I said, well, no, but I started making it. So it's cashew nuts and coconut milk-based. And uh, this one was mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate so chip. So vegan I, chocolate. Vegan chocolate. Although you need that category, that categorization, because actually most chocolate is vegan. Mm-hmm. But you need it. You need a special kind of stamp on it. I see. Okay. Because it's sometimes pro- made in a special factory. Uh, okay. So here's what we're going to do. We got to talk about the flavors. Great. And you and we have to say where you are online because this is worth it. I just want to live next door to this man. This is how good this ice cream is. It's called What Is Real Ice Cream. Dot com. That's his website. And if you forget, it's on our website, foodschmooze.org. You know that one. The curry butter pecan was one of the ones so unbelievably delicious. Big chunks of sweet, salty pecans and that curry in there. Where where was the curry? In the nuts? Curry, when I candy the nuts. And the stovetop, oh, I put, just, put curry in It's such a there. light touch, too. Oh. Is that like in butter? It's, it's in butter. There's brown ah. sugar. There's sugar and salt and curry. Yeah, there's a little hit of salt in a, a couple of these ice creams that I adored. We love that sweet, salty balance. And boy, have you got it. Uh, the strawberry. I haven't ordered strawberry since I was a kid. When I tasted this, did we all ask for seconds mm. I on did. strawberry? Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I had an ice cream flight, and that was the one yeah. I went back for more. Me too. Yep. And, and, and strawberry is the, the hardest, pecan. right? There's an entire website devoted to why you cannot make a good strawberry ice cream. So tell me what you do with your strawberry ice cream. It was amazing. So after many, many trials and a lot of ice cream thrown away, I couldn't get enough flavor out of the ice cream, out of the strawberries. So I roasted them in balsamic vinegar and sugar. In oh, the oven. They go in the oven brilliant. for 40 minutes at 300 degrees. And I let them cool. I make my base separately. And I put them together. I blend it all together. And then I add, for the finish, some lemon zest at the very end. So that's that kind of very, as a light, light touch at the very end of it. Mm, that it, lemon it, comes through. Yeah, and it all brings exactly. the flavor of strawberry up. That's right. what I loved about it. Everything you did just made the strawberry just a little more potent. And then it ended up being the best, the best uh, strawberry ice cream I've ever had. A balsamic does what it does, which is to add that base note, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. You know, that Sourness. hit of acid, but base, mm-hmm. a kind of base acid, which mm-hmm. sounds opposite. But anyway, it was so, yeah. well, you know how balsamic, a very good balsamic on strawberries, strawberries is just killer. Yeah. So he's got it. Honestly, yeah. it, we were nuts over this I one. was going back between that one and the pecan curry. Mm. Yeah, yeah, me too. Exactly. Yeah. Although the vanilla, <laughs> I'm, I'm a vanilla fan. And vanilla, like uh, soup in a restaurant, yep. is a great indication of how a restaurant is going to be for the rest of the meal. And wow, did he nail vanilla. And that's the one that I noticed the texture of your ice cream. Oh, yeah. Smooth. Right, that, oh, smooth, creamy. It just sits on your tongue and just just melts so perfectly over your palate. Yeah. Absolute heaven. Thank you. The yeah. skim milk powder was the was the real revelation in all my trials because it, you take out all the liquid. The liquid, water. The water into yeah. the ice cream base. But you're getting that creaminess. All so is the skim milk. milk powder, is it protein mostly? Did you have to search around it's, to find the right skim milk powder or is it it's just widely available? I just use Bob's. 
<laughs> they make yeah. everything. I find it's wonderful. I like, I like their natural. philosophy. Yeah. So what's in the vanilla? Do you use vanilla, scraped vanilla out of the pod? So I discovered uh, vanilla paste. Yeah. So you get all the little black dots. Without having to scrape them. Without having beans. to scrape them. <laughs> scrape them. Yeah. And uh, it adds so much more flavor to the ice cream. Do you cream. see the dots in the vanilla? You see the oh, dots. Yes. Everywhere. Yeah. I use it in yeah. every single flavor. Yeah. I love those. <laughs> you do. Every single flavor yeah, of vanilla paste note, is in right? there. Wow. It's so good and it's so, so expensive. Well, so expensive. Is it? Now. Yeah. Ooh, wow. It's more like okay. gold now, right? Oh, well. You could add um, gold flex. Gold It'd flex. It'd be cheaper than vanilla right now. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I'm just, I'm blown away by it. Yeah. I, I have Best to ice say, cream I've had in a long time. Me Thank too. You. Yeah. Um, if I were getting married now, I really would have an ice cream bar and Netta yeah. would be the one I'd call. Uh-huh. You know, I Set was right, listening right to him the, yeah. saying, he. Yeah. Ha- I thought, what am I thinking having a party with all this food? What a fun yeah. idea just to have just cream. have an ice cream party. <laughs> now, Netta's going to be very busy <laughs> at my party, but it's so, just such a really, it's such a fun idea. Okay. Thank so, you. Yes, and please stay with us on the show and join in, have some fun with us. This is Netta Hadari of New Haven. He is founder and owner of What is Real Ice Cream, and he drove his giant tricycle. You can find out where he's going to be online. He'll he'll go anywhere in Connecticut. <laughs> yes, he says. you can find me on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Not on the not on the Highway. tricycle. He's not <laughs> ri- <laughs> riding to your house. on the side okay. of the road. There he yeah, is. Um, so, if you, but if you see the tricycle guy, <laughs> yeah. or what is real at any of uh, the, the Connecticut? Or, yes, yeah. food festivals. Or at the private party where yeah. they might have many stations. I'm going to look up I'm where you are you, next. Go to this. Go to this guy. Yeah. Might be um, worth going to where you end up next. On, um, <laughs> you can find his address at our site, foodschmooze.org. But it, for for those of you who want to know right now, what is real? Icecream.com. Coming up next, we have Mark Bittman. How to grill. Everything, and I mean everything. So, if you want to get better at what you do or you're just starting out, this is the place to be. More mouth watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. Dispenser man, if you please, serve my chick a mess of calories. Banana split for my baby A glass of plain water for me Flip back the lid, scoop anything in sight Make it a rainbow of red, brown, and white Chop a chip and everything that's nice To the fruity one cents, but only twice Banana split for my baby And a glass of plain water for me Spray the whipped cream for at least Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire 
got fired. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire, the ring of fire. I'm Faith Middleton. You can sign up for our free podcast of the show. It arrives in your inbox. You can listen whenever you want, how everybody does it. Just go to foodschmooze.org. I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, wine broker Alex Province at our sister station, KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, Netta Hadari, our special guest of whatsrealicecream.com, our special, special guest is Mark Bittman returning to the show. And I have to say, you're in the right place if you would like to learn to grill or get better at it. I'm somebody who wants to truly learn to grill. Years ago, I could grill, and now I realize I'm a novice, and this book has been so helpful. Our idea man is Mark. He's author of How to Grill Everything, and I think it's a gem. I'm always learning when it comes to grilling. And we're going to talk about charcoal and gas grilling. No fancy grill necessary. Even a, a $25 grill will work. Mark is author of what seems like a thousand books. Uh, he had a TV show. Cares not just about cooking and eating, but about food policy too. Now though, grilling. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks, Faith. Great to be here. Uh, so let me ask you about this idea that there's something about grilling that is intimidating to people or makes people impatient. Oh, I have to go out and turn the grill on 15 minutes ahead of my cooking. It just annoys people. And yet there's this legion of people over here who just live and die by grilling. What's going on for the people who are intimidated, for whom there's a block? Um, well, I think it, it is different from cooking inside, but you know, most people in this country are afraid of cooking in general, so I don't know that grilling is all that much different. And grilling is more fun than most other cooking. So I, I think that's what draws people to it. I think there's also some, it's not genetic, but, it, you know, it was the first way that, that humans cooked, and I think we have some feelings about that. I think somehow we know that and we feel that, and I think there is kind of a magnetic draw about grilling that other forms of cooking just don't have. Yeah. We're going to get to your spatchcocked chicken, which is a chicken that is kind of split with garlic and parsley and orange. This, I know this one, this is a delicious, delicious thing. Uh, do you think that the amount you spend on a grill is going to make all that much difference? I'm not going to speak to the value of a $3,000 grill. I'm just going to say it's not something that everybody needs to have. Mm -hmm. And as you said in the intro, you know, a perfectly inexpensive little grill that'll hold a hibachi type thing that'll hold charcoal is fine. But gas grills that cost a couple hundred dollars are so much better than they were 10 years ago and so much hotter and so much sturdier. And I think that's a function of competition mostly that I don't, I, you know, I don't see need to spend more than that. Yeah. And Mark, is it the, the heat, the high temperature that a grill can get to that makes it different from what happens in an ordinary kitchen? That and direct fire. So the fact that you can grill, you know, you can get a grill to, say, 800 degrees, even a gas grill in 10 or 15 minutes, 
and the fact that you can cook directly over that flame. That's the combination that, that makes grilling different. And what is that difference? Is it the sear that happens, which increases flavor? What is it about, do you think? There is quick browning, that, and that does matter. I mean, a lot of us have difficulty cooking over high enough heat in the kitchen, and in part because, you know, we're all sick of having smoke detectors go off, and that's a real that is a real issue. I mean, if you put your oven at 550 or you put a pan on the stove at over high heat and leave it there for 10 minutes, Uh-oh. we all know those problems. So outside, that doesn't happen. Um, the wood flavor that comes with grilling, and even on a gas grill, you can add a little wood to the, to the grill and get that same wood flavor is another, you know, another feature that makes people love it and that makes it special. Yeah. Thank you, by the way, for letting us put three of your recipes from the book on our website. So this one is at foodschmooze.org with a lot of information about Mark's book. It is terrific. And this is his spatchcocked chicken with garlic, parsley, and orange. So people who don't understand what spatchcocking of a chicken is, it's just like split it open. Go ahead, Mark. Well, it is an old-fashioned word. And it's an old-fashioned technique, but it's basically removing the backbone of a whole chicken, which is pretty easily done either with a heavy knife or with a, a butcher shears. Yeah, but it's not—it's not hacking. It's really cutting. But that bone is is not so uh, firmly attached that it's difficult to cut through it on either side. It's really a pretty simple procedure. So you cut out that backbone and you flatten the chicken, and of course. Needless to say, it cooks twice as fast that way and browns beautifully and stays moist and juicy inside and all the things you'd expect me to say. So, but here's the thing I don't want to have happen, that someone gets nervous about being skilled enough to do what Mark is claiming to be simple. But I would say, as some of my friends do, they just go to the butcher and they say, I'd like this many spatchcocked chickens, and they cut them up and then hand them to them. So well, you know, that's brilliant. That is definitely easier. No yeah. question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure and how face. brilliant, but go ahead, Alex. And I always um, ask to save the backbone. I put it in a Ziploc bag and freeze it for chicken stock, so don't throw it away. Oh, that's good. That's good. So in this, you've got garlic and uh, salt and fresh parsley and olive oil and a navel orange that you've halved. And so you've got all those flavors together. And if you have, this is one of my favorite things on the planet to eat. I was so excited when I came to this recipe. So Mark, I'm going to try this. I have a friend who makes this all the time and I'm so jealous and it seems like some kind of magic. And so now that you've given me this technique, I'm going to do it. Excellent. Well, I love the butcher idea. Thank you. Okay. Um, So Chris, would you talk with us about making this recipe from the book, which we also have on our website, the perfect steak uh, you did it for us, Chris, and we just ate it before the show market. It was oh, delicious. Man. It was delicious. Okay, go. I just want to say one thing first. If you're going to buy this book, this is the reason. This recipe, <laughs> this explanation, 
everyone I know that grills steak always asks me every question that you answer on these three pages of this recipe. So if you've ever had problems making steak on a grill, just read these three pages of this recipe and you'll never have problems well, what, again. What's the biggest problem before we get into this, how, how to do this perfect steak? Maybe it's as easy as salt and pepper both sides. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> the high heat, the direct heat, getting it right over that, buying the right steak. I mean that's why the I love thickness. this recipe so much. He doesn't just tell you how to grill it. He tells you how to shop for it, what the difference between a T-bone, a ribeye. He even goes into the other cuts like the flat iron and the hanger and the differences. And then he goes on and tells you how to cook, how to rest it afterwards. And if just for ha-has he gives you – and this is the one I did. Just for ha-has he gives you this black and blue butter that I kept going black and blue butter. And then when I read it's black pepper and blue cheese, I'm like, that is genius. I'm so going to to steal that and put it on my (laughs) restaurant menu because why not black and blue butter? Maybe you need to call it Mark's black and blue butter, butter. just to be fair. It really tells you – and that's why I love his books and his recipes. It tells you everything you need to know. So, Mark, what do you think as we describe how to do the, the perfect steak on the grill? What do you think is the one mistake that really gets people upset well shopping is sort of half the battle but each cut is a little bit different which is why it takes so long to sort of say how to do this but i i think the one thing that they all have in common is at some point you have to expose them to high heat it can be at the beginning of cooking it can be at the end of cooking it can be the total amount of cooking if the steak's not too thick but going back to how you started you need that sear that is what we crave, and that's what restaurants have done so well and why we keep going back to steakhouses. It's not, there's no secret here. I mean, a steak with salt and pepper is a really amazing thing if it's a good piece of meat to start with and you cook it right. How about resting the steak? Is that important? Well, you know, Faith had said the single most important thing. I, you know, I think the process is, <laughs> the process is valuable, and, and experience can be your guide. But I think... You buy it, you let it come to room temperature, you salt it in advance, you cook it over high heat, but if it's thick, you have to move it off the heat for part of the time. You rest it. Those are sort of the key things, yeah. I'm glad you put it like that. And I want to say, Alex, I appreciate your question. My steaks have often been overcooked because I take them off when they look absolutely perfect. And Mm. then, as Chris has explained to me many times, and now Mark is explaining, when it's sitting there resting for a minute to, people debate about this, reabsorb the juices, it keeps cooking. It's called carryover cooking. So... Then it's suddenly more yeah. cooked, and Netta is nodding his yeah. head. You know, yeah, you find that too. So, um, and he says I find five to ten to, degrees. I find that a key thing, and I love that Mark just laid out. Here it is: you buy the steak, you salt and pepper it if you want to pepper it, and then you put it on the grill, sear it either at the start or the finish. And then move it. When he said move it off the grill, he doesn't mean take it off the grill. (laughs) He means move it to a cooler part of the grill where the flame isn't so that it has a slow heat and the rest cooks. In the kitchen, you would then put your skillet with the steak in it into the oven, and it would do the same thing. So that's what Mark's doing. Go ahead. And the last thing, and this is one of the best things that he says, is slice it. I love that. Even when I'm in a restaurant, I love that. I love it when my have guests over. So you let it rest. Then you slice it, put it on a nice platter. If you're doing the butter, put it over it. And then it's so easy. 
So again, ends perfectly. Mark, can you talk about just going in there and trying things with your grill and not being afraid to make mistakes, learn from that, read a book like yours and say, oh, I forgot this part or here's, oh, that's what I was doing wrong. And that's how everybody who's easy with a grill gets going, like riding a bicycle. Go ahead. Well, riding a bicycle is right. And I usually say playing tennis or driving a car. You don't expect to be good the first time you do it. And this is not just grilling. This is cooking in general. You have to make mistakes and you have to be willing to make mistakes. I'm sure there are 50 adages about learning by failing, but that is what has to happen. You have to, things will go wrong and it's inevitable that they'll go wrong, but every time they do go wrong, you learn something. And Julia Child, in one of her more famous comments, said the great thing about cooking is that we get to eat our mistakes. So it's, <laughs> it's just the way Sometimes. it is. It's how you learn. You learn by failing. Not everything is going to be a success, and um, it's not going to be a tragic mistake. It's going to be a mistake that you say, aha, uh-huh, I overcooked this, I undercooked this, I failed to season it enough. I season it too much, whatever it is, and the next time you don't make that same mistake. Yeah. We're talking with Mark Bittman. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers for on-demand podcast delivery of the Food Schmooze Party every week. And to find all of our food, wine, and cocktail recommendations, hot topics, short, fun streaming videos, and recipes that we feature, we're always online talking with you at foodschmooze.org. More Mark Bittman in just a minute. The taste of love is sweet. When hearts like ours meet I fell for you like a child Oh, but the fire went wild I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire, the ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames were higher. I want a taste of I'm on fire. This is the Food Schmooze Party, offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, East End of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. Senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken. And to hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts and our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. And 
And we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, as you know, Faith Middleton Fuchmoose. We're continuing our conversation with Mark Bittman, who has a new book, How to Grill Everything. And I really love this book. That's the philosophy of the show. If we don't like something, we move it aside. We think, why badmouth somebody? And then, <laughs> and then, and then we, we pick the things we like. And so that's why you hear me saying, I love this or I love that. It's not that I love everything. I'm curating. So Netta Hadari, the ice cream man. Yeah. We were just talking before the show, Mark, about how Netta wants to have more vegetables in his life and for his family. So he's using meat as an accent. And I know from reading you for years, Mark, that you started to move in that direction too. We're about to talk about your sweet potato eggplant stacks with a lime ricotta. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. So tell me why you want less meat, Netta. I'm just moving to a more plant-based diet for everybody. Why? For health reasons, for sustainability reasons. And I'm very fortunate that I have daughters who like vegetables. It takes training, but they like their vegetables, and I want to make make them in creative enough ways that I'm sometimes fooling them into eating it. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, have have you continued to be uh, what we'll call a flexitarian? Yeah. When I speak in front of audiences, I often ask who's eating less meat than they were 10 years ago, and I'd say the the positive response to that question is 95%. I mean, everybody's eating less than they were 10 years ago. So Mm. that may not be true of everyone in the country. I speak to self-selecting audiences, obviously, but I'll bet 95% of your listeners are eating less meat than they were 10 years Mm. ago. Certainly, it's Mm -hmm. not an uncommon thing. So in speaking of like what Chris was saying of slicing the steak and and Mark, um, we're able to take a big steak, just Matt and I, instead of having two steaks, we do one and cook it nicely, and then we slice it on the board, and then we share it. And then you eat, you get your two or three or four pieces, and it satisfies you without having to, like, eat a big shoe size steak. And you you do cauliflower in the grill or something like that. But When I eat steak now, I think I probably eat a quarter of what I ate when I was 20. Cost has something to do with it, too, now, too, right? I mean, beef is so expensive. This is really interesting because there was an episode of Billions, which is a series that I highly (laughs) recommend. And there was a scene where they're all sitting in a famous restaurant in New York, and they're having the steak. And one of them comes over and says to the other, oh, you must be doing well. I see you're having the rich people steak. And it is this gorgeous thing. And it's they're slicing it up. And oh, my God, your mouth is watering watching this thing. And I thought, this is something. So they have now made steak into gold bullion, a complete status symbol, (laughs) trying to bring back steak as a, you know, you deserve the whole thing. So, or John Candy winning a prize for eating, you know, like a huge <laughs> two-pound steak or something. Don't you hate those? I hate those contests. Okay. It's free if you can finish it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, Mark, can't wait to get to this. The sweet potato eggplant stacks with lime ricotta. This could be an actual meal for me. Now, you might say, oh, yeah, right. But seriously, it has that richness and acid and that sort of umami thing, all the unctuousness that you want from an actual meal. So let's see, sweet potato peeled and cut into rounds, eggplant mark, uh, red onions cut into slices, good olive oil, salt and pepper, ricotta cheese, your favorite, grated 
zest and the juice of a lime and chopped fresh basil. Go ahead. You know, in fact, it's one of the more elaborate recipes in the book because for me, that's a lot of ingredients. And you're doing two or three different things um, in order to prepare those. But the payoff is great because it's unusual, it's gorgeous, and it is a vegetable dish. So there's that. I think for many people, it would be a main course. Would that be for you? On some nights, yeah. Yeah, perhaps with a side of steak, but yeah. (laughs) What terrifies me the most is not steak on the grill, even though I can make my mistakes, fish on the grill. And so I read every word of what you said about how to cook different pieces of fish and the different ways to do it, really like the help. And these sesame-crusted tuna steaks with Mm. a lime-dipping sauce – That's just good together. Think about this. Sesame oil, sesame seeds on the outside of the tuna steak, lime juice, soy sauce, rice vinegar, sugar, fresh ginger, garlic, chopped scallions, all available in the supermarket. Go, Mark. That's a sort of classic thing, or at least I've been making it for most of my life. What's really nice is to use white and black sesame seeds, and then it's very pretty also. But, you know, fish is challenging if you choose the wrong fish. But if you choose the right fish, it's not that difficult. Really, to go back to where we started, I think chicken is the is the terrifying thing on the grill because it catches fire so easily. But fish, mm. if you use steaks like tuna, salmon, swordfish, halibut, if the grill's clean and there's a little oil on the grill or on the fish, you should be fine. Do you believe in these grill grates that sit on top of the grate in our grills, and they're supposed to somehow conduct heat better, prevent flare-ups. I'm not talking about baskets for cooking vegetables. I'm talking about these actual wide-bore grill grates. Do you believe in those, Mark? I believe they exist, but I don't believe they're worth anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some version of global warming. (laughs) Um, Okay, go ahead. The interesting thing about them is if you want to grill peas or blueberries, they're kind of useful because you can do that. But, um, you, know, you, don't want to, you don't want to tame the heat of a grill. The whole idea is to get that heat on the food. And if, if it's time to lower the heat, then you move the food off the heat. Or you, if you have a gas grill, you turn it down. It's not that challenging. You don't need a gizmo like that. Although, seriously, for little vegetables, it's fabulous. I mean, you can grill string beans. You could literally grill blueberries. I mean, I don't know that you'd want to, but Hmm, for for things that you're worried about falling through the grates, it's a useful tool. For flame reduction, it's counterproductive. So I, I realized at some point, and I think maybe because of something you said in one of your How to Cook Everything books, that we tend to overcook vegetables on the grill. And I realized I'm one of those people. So I started to watch much more carefully and be very careful about where I place the vegetables to get a sear but not burn them. So how many times do we go to either somebody's house or we're serving really pretty black vegetables? (laughs) And that's really not the idea. Okay, go ahead. I learned only about 10 years ago or so that grilling vegetables over pretty low heat is the way to go. You can grill a lot of them at once. You can take your time. You cannot be hysterical. And if you want to brown them, you raise the heat a little bit at the end and brown them. But you have much, much more control with 
almost every vegetable you can think of if you just start with low heat. Of course, it takes longer, but you get better results. So we, you hear us not talking about gas or charcoal, and it's really your preference. Whatever you have is fine. Whatever you prefer is fine. If you want to give it a shot, which one do you think you, somebody should start with? Is, is one easier than the other? Well, you know, everything yes, in cooking right. is a compromise. You will have people tell you that if you're not cooking over a wood fire, you're not grilling. So even even charcoal is a compromise to somebody like that. For most of us, a gas grill is the easiest thing. And in fact, more people own gas grills in the United States now than own charcoal grills. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. that's certainly where I would start. They're easy, they're reliable, they're not that expensive, and you can be grilling in 15 minutes, which even with lump charcoal you're you know you're talking about a half an hour or 40 minutes before you can start yeah yeah i've i've been defending gas for since gas grills started becoming popular and um this is like walking to to school (laughs) this is is one of those it has the ring of i used to walk two miles to school (laughs) i've been defending gas grills this brings up alex who's in phoenix mark He's been going around his property in Phoenix. He's new to the Southwest and collecting the these pieces of, is it mesquite that you're collecting on the right. ground? Yep. Yeah, and so, throwing so, them into your, what kind of grill are you throwing So we're using a, a kettle grill, and we use direct and indirect. This new technique is I'm collecting all this mesquite firewood that I put on one side, the indirect side, and then... I'm using, you know, lump charcoal on on the hot side. And what's happening is every time I'm done cooking, I close it all up and, you know, the air vents on the top and the bottom, those sticks on one end are starting to charcoal. Mm-hmm. So I've accumulated this like pile of really fragrant charcoal. So now all my food, whether it's fish, it's starting, you know, my kettle grill is starting to smell like a smoker before I walk through the yard and when I find this mesquite on the ground. But you can do the same thing back east with applewood, fruit trees or cherry wood or, you know, or go to a, your um, just your hardware store and they sell all chunks of mesquite there. And yeah, but so not it's, it's, careful not to, to think that any wood because there are some woods that are not going to be healthy. I wouldn't use poisonous roots. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, green wood is not so good, and softwood is not as good as hardwood. Most people have some hardwood in their in their region, and most people can scavenge it. I don't think you even need to go to the hardware mm-hmm. store. And Alex, I just want to say, what you're doing is perfect, and people can do that on gas grills too. Same thing. You put some wood on the cool side, mm-hmm. and once that catches fire, you're essentially smoking or cooking over wood. One of my favorite things to have is prosciutto-wrapped melon. So melon Uh slices wrapped with that salty prosciutto. So you've got that sweet, salty thing going on that we love so much here on the show. And I was so happy to see this recipe, Mark. So the question is, let's say we're on a gas grill with something like that. Where are we? So we've wrapped the prosciutto, I mean the um, melon slices with prosciutto. Where are we starting out on the grill? That is not something you're going to cook for a long time, and it is not something you're going to cook over high heat. You really just want to warm that up. But once you have that warmed with a slightly crisped up prosciutto on the outside, you're never going to go back to raw. Nice. Because what happens when you start, when you cook it, the flavor snaps, doesn't it? It just goes Mm. boom. It caramelizes. 
that kind of just sort of juice starts to come out of the melon. It gets more tender, and, um, mm. and it just seems so much more luxurious this way. Oh, that's a good word. Okay, so now, do you still want to write fiction? <laughs> um, you know, I think I've given up. I think I've given mm. up because I realize I'm not that good at it. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's hard. I, I mean... It is hard. I, I, I'm sure it is hard. I, I don't even get to the point where it's hard. I think I'm so unimaginative and uncreative in that world. <laughs> no, that is impossible. Come mean, on. It's okay. It's okay. There's lots of things I can't do. It's fine. It's just... No, that's true. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about um, the woman who had the brilliant idea to do the mysteries taking place in the food world. I can't think of her name at the moment. I think she's in Washington, oh, D.C., and I Post. thought, yeah. oh, that was smart. Oh, Phyllis Richmond. Richmond. That's it, Phyllis uh, Richmond. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was but smart. we love your cookbook, so we're yeah, good. The talking steak. Well, I'm okay with that. Yeah. You, you could, know, you get to a certain age, you realize there's things you're not going to do. So I, you, I don't think writing the great American novels in my future. I know, but you could throw in a bonus short story in the next. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, this book, "How to Grill Everything," Mark Bittman. If you're just starting out and you really are in the learning stage, and in a way, that's me. I used to grill, then I left it for a long, long time, and wow, I didn't retain that. So I'm one of those starting out people, and I find this very helpful. If you are somebody who knows how to grill and feels, you know, a bit proprietary about your your station at the grill, these recipes are going to widen your horizon. So thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Oh, me too. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. We are on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 p.m. and Saturdays at noon. Weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, don't want the party to end? Well, neither do we. Talk with us anytime online at foodschmooze.org.